It's Thursday, June 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Former Stanford University sailing coach John Vandermoor is the first person to be sentenced in the college admissions cheating scandal, Operation Varsity Blues. He was sentenced to one day in prison, six months of home detention, two years of supervised release, and a $10,000 fine. My producer Miranda joins us to break it down and the thing that worked in his favor. He never pocketed the money, but sent it all back to the sailing program. Next, nearly 1,400 people have died in Congo from an Ebola outbreak that has lasted nearly a year. And now, the contagious disease has spread to Uganda. A five-year-old boy crossed the border with his family and later died. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us for more on the Ebola outbreak. Finally, at first it looked like a simple domestic murder, but then police learned about the alien reptilian cult. Steve Minio was shot by his girlfriend Barbara Rogers, who had been accused of being a vampire witch reptilian super soldier. Kyle Swenson, reporter for the Washington Post, joins us for the bizarre backstory of this extraterrestrial cult that swallowed them both up. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I did not take any money personally. All donations from Singer went directly to Stanford and the sailing team. In no way could I have mu- I have used the money for personal expenses or personal gain. My actions were wrong. I see that now. But my intentions were to help the team. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We have an update for Operation Varsity Blues, the college admissions cheating scandal. The ex-Stanford sailing coach, John Vandermoor, is the first person sentenced now in this whole scam and largely avoids prison time. All he got was one day of prison. That's basically reporting, Mm -hmm. taking your picture and leaving. But he's getting six months of home detention after that and two years of supervised release. He's the first of 50 defendants to be punished for their role in this whole thing. He's also got to pay a $10,000 fine. What else do we know about John Vandermoor? Well, the judge called him likely the least culpable of the scandals cases because the money he got went directly into the sailing program instead of in his own pockets. And he's the only one who so far seems sincerely remorseful that he admits he made a terrible mistake and that he's really disappointed in himself. So the federal prosecutors are disappointed with this ruling. They wanted him to be given a 13-month sentence so that they could have what they call a meaningful prison term intended to help repair public confidence in the college admission system. But for this part, he got off kind of light. The prosecutor said that his actions not only deceived and defrauded the university that employed him, but also validated a national cynicism over college admissions by helping wealthy and unscrupulous applicants enjoy an unjust advantage over others. And that's really what the heart of this whole Operation Varsity Blues thing is, is just the unfairness that comes with money. Mm -hmm. For his part, he already pled guilty in March to all of this. They said that he accepted $610,000 in payments. Stanford said it identified $770,000 in funds that came from William Rick Singer, who was the mastermind behind this whole thing. So who knows exactly what dollar amount lies in. But going back to how the judge said he was the least culpable. One of the interesting was, is that all of the students that Rick Singer brought to him, none of them even went to Stanford. A a few of them did get that distinction as their recruits and whatnot, but they all chose other schools to go to. Some went to Vanderbilt, some went to Brown. And the way these guys even got hooked up, because if you know anything about college athletics, 
Sailing isn't an NCAA sports. There's no scholarship for it. There aren't recruits. People aren't scouting high school students to be joining these teams. So Mr. Vandemore hasn't really gotten any of that kind of support. So when Rick Singer just kind of called him out of the blue and said, hey, I know these child Olympians. I know the parents of these kids who want to get into your sailing program. Because when Vandemore got this call from him, he said, yeah, I'll talk to you. I have a hard time finding students to join my sailing program. And part of his job as a coach is also to raise money right. and get money for the program. Vandermore said that part of the pressure to raise money was to get new boats, which run about $8,000 to $10,000 a piece. So he's feeling this pressure. This guy, Rick Singer, comes to him. And the reports were that he just got a call out of the blue from Rick Singer. One of the students in particular that he wanted to introduce to Vandermore was this one student who we later found out those were the parents that ended up paying Rick Singer $6.5 million to try to get their kid into some of these top schools. Yeah. So Singer showed up to Stanford a day after calling Vandemer. And towards the end of that initial conversation, he was like, hey, I've got a student I want to introduce to you. Vandemer ultimately didn't help her application because it was too late in the season to try to tag her as a potential athletic recruit. But she did get entrance to the school through regular admission. So he got off on that one. But once this all came to light, that girl got expelled. And that's when Vandemer got fired. Rick Singer just kept giving him money and said, well, just save this for the next student and the next student and the next student. And Vandemer, to his part, really believed he was taking donations, not bribes. Vandermore would take the checks straight down to the Stanford Development Office and put the funds into two different accounts. One was for uniforms and equipments for the program, and the other one is to pay for the salary of an assistant coach. So, again, to what the judge's point was, he didn't benefit personally from this. It just went right back into his program there. The last thing I want to mention is that day that the cops actually come to get you. Yeah. It was 7 a.m. He was in shorts and a T-shirt getting his kids ready for school. That's when uh, federal agents, one from the FBI, one from the IRS, came to knock on his house. He talked to them for two hours. They already had a ton of evidence. That's why he pled guilty and went through the whole process. He still had to coach a sailing regatta knowing everything was going to go down in flames shortly thereafter. So he was just filled with remorse and feeling like crap. He lost everything, Oscar. He lived. That house that the FBI agents knocked on was Stanford teacher housing. So he lost his home. He lost his job. He's now taking colleges online through Cornell to try to get a second wind and a new career. He's only 40-something years old. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. The Ministry of Health would like to inform the public of the confirmation of Ebola virus disease in Kasese District, Uganda. The confirmed case is a five-year-old boy who traveled from the Democratic Republic of Congo with his mother. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. Nearly 1,400 people have died of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now the contagious disease has spread to Uganda. A five-year-old boy in Uganda became the first cross-border victim. He just passed away. He crossed into Uganda with his family. And that's just kind of fueling the worries that this thing is spreading. The Democratic Republic of the Congo has been battling with an Ebola outbreak for about a year now. What do we know about this? Starting with the boy crossing the border, we know that there were possible indications of that illness beginning in the Congo and possibly stopping at a treatment center, but then maybe escaping over the border. That's 
some of the story. It's a little unclear if that is the case. The thing to know about Uganda here is they've been preparing for this for months, and they are a country that knows how to battle Ebola outbreak and knows how difficult it is. So they have been testing people coming over the border to see if they have fever. They have been looking for symptoms and signs. And most experts that I talked to were actually very surprised that it took this long to get a case coming over the border because the outbreak in the DRC has been going on for so long and an area is relatively close to Uganda where there's a lot of cross-border traffic. There is an experimental but pretty effective Ebola vaccine that's being widely used. And as you were saying, Uganda is well prepared for this. They've already vaccinated nearly 4,700 health workers and the World Health Organization is shipping out another 3,500 vaccines to the area. So they are a little better equipped for that. I think the family that did cross over into Uganda, they crossed over not at one of these ports of entry where people are being screened. They had another area where they snuck in through. But Uganda now has three cases in their country, and the other two are related to the boy also. I think it's his brother and his grandma that are also infected now. Yeah, and that family type of infection is something that's been going on a lot in the DRC. So the part of the problem in the Congo is that about 50% of the cases that they've been seeing have been coming from people who are not known contacts of other patients. So really, in order to squelch an outbreak like this, you need to track down every single person who came into contact with somebody who had the virus when they were contagious and monitor them. And if they show signs, then you bring them in and do contact tracing of people who came into contact with them. And only through that arduous process can this really be brought to a halt. And a lot of the people that are showing up in Ebola treatment centers are showing up too late to be effectively treated. They're showing up and they're not on the known contacts list, which means maybe they got sick at home and exposed people. A lot of people are dying at home, unfortunately. So maybe to anticipate a little bit more of the discussion, like this outbreak has been going on so long in in the DRC. It'll be a year in August. Experts that I talked to today are telling me they don't really anticipate it being over for possibly another 12 to 24 months. Oh, wow. Which would be astounding because we've never seen an outbreak in a situation like this where there's significant security risks in the DRC. This is happening in basically a war zone, but it's internal conflict. Some of that conflict has turned on the health workers. They've attacked Ebola treatment centers. They've attacked and killed health workers, including a relatively prominent Ebola doctor. And that's one of the most confusing parts of this. I mean, everybody knows how deadly this Ebola virus is. But there's so much distrust in the community there. These armed rebel groups are trying to be violent against these health workers. They're sending text messages, stop or we'll kill you. They're passing out leaflets telling neighbors that these people are the enemies. For five days last month, health workers had to stop all operations because of the violence directed at the Ebola response. So they say that there was a surge of new infections during that time that they had to stop operations. Why is there so much distrust for these health workers? Yeah, that's been a challenge and a bit of a mystery to crack. Some of it comes from a distrust of authority. Some of it comes from a distrust 
of where the money is going. So these are regions that have not exactly had their health needs met. And suddenly these groups are coming in and setting up fully functional treatment centers, but are only taking in patients for Ebola and only vaccinating people for Ebola and not treating many other more prevalent illnesses. Some of it is just plain old misinformation that is actually being spread through WhatsApp and other social media channels that the government in the DRC is trying to combat. And some of it is just fear. But they've interviewed people in the communities and they have basically said they don't believe Ebola is real. They don't believe it exists. And these are outsiders coming in to harm them. There have been some headlines in San Antonio area. One of the popular headlines, disease-ridden Congolese migrants dumped in San Antonio. The article that I'm referencing there goes on to say, oh, you know, there's people coming from the Congo, a country chock full of Ebola. You don't know what they have. There was so much social media fur that health officials had to have a news conference to debunk those rumors. So we just wanted to put it out there that there are Congolese migrants that are making their way to San Antonio area, but they are not infected with Ebola. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, Steve wasn't involved in a cult. And I'm not a cult, and I'm not a cult leader. And so I want to set that straight because Barbara's trying to settle up her defense because everything she said was a lie. She hunted Steve down, picked his head up from the floor and put a bullet in his head. Joining us now is Kyle Swenson, reporter for the Washington Post. We're going to be talking about a story you wrote up. The headline catches you right away. It looked like a simple domestic murder. Then police learned about the alien reptile cult. When I saw that right away, it just perked me up and I was like, yes, I have to read more about this. So the story is about a woman named Barbara Rogers and her boyfriend, Steve Minio. Basically, they had got caught up in some extraterrestrial reptilian type cult thing run by a woman named Sherry Schreiner. But Barbara Rogers and her boyfriend were drinking one night. She ended up shooting him in the head. He passed away and she was just sentenced by a judge to 15 to 40 years in prison for all this. But as the trial was unfolding and things were happening, this story of this reptilian cult started coming through. Tell us about this crazy story. So in July 2017, as you mentioned, this couple, they were out drinking at night in rural Pennsylvania. And eventually a gun becomes involved. And the next thing you know, Around 2 a.m., Barbara Rogers calls 911 dispatch and says, I've shot my boyfriend. He put a gun to his head, put my hands around the trigger, and maybe pulled the trigger, and he's dead. She was subsequently charged with murder, but what developed the trial was this incredibly bizarre situation where she explained that the couple had become involved with this extraterrestrial alien end-world apocalyptic cult, and that the beliefs that they had there and kind of a disagreement that they had with the cult founder had driven her boyfriend to basically commit suicide by proxy to force her to shoot him. So a lot of this concerns the boyfriend, Steve Minio, and the quote unquote 
cult leader, Sherry Schreiner, who has a ton of YouTube videos, all sorts of stuff online with a bunch of conspiracy theories and things like that. And it came to a point where it seemed that Sherry said that Barbara was bad news for Steve and that she thought that she might be some vampire super soldier type thing. And this is where things really went bad because it put him at odds with the group and with his girlfriend, too. It just kind of increased the tensions there. Yeah, essentially, this is kind of a classic conundrum, right? A, a guy is put between his friends and his girlfriend, except here it's incredibly bizarre and, 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 <laughs> right. and strange. So what you have the belief system of this cult, and I'm not an expert, and there's really a lot to go through to wrap your head around it. But from what I understand, it's kind of a mix of extraterrestrial belief and revelation Christianity about the end times. And the idea, I think, is that there's this new world order plot by aliens and demons to take over humanity and also these reptilian creatures that pretend or pose as humans. And Schreiner, in her videos and her communications with Minio told him that she began to suspect that his girlfriend, Rogers, was in fact a reptilian, one of these aliens hiding as a human. What actually, according to Schreiner, clued her in about this was that she saw on Facebook that Rogers had talked about eating red meat. And Schreiner's worldview, if you're eating red meat, it means you're possessed by a demon or you have a certain thirst for blood. So she went to Minio and, and basically told him that she thought that his girlfriend was an alien pretending to be a human. He had been following this woman since the early 2000s, it seems. And he became very upset about that. And, and he, in turn, kind of, you know, he was stuck between his belief system, his cult, and his girlfriend. And eventually, it seems he began to suspect that the cult leader, in fact, was the one who was the alien pretending to be a human. It's one of these endless cycles of enemies all around me. You were talking about how Rogers was saying that she wanted to eat meat. There was a specific thing. Her wanting to eat steak tartare. And that was the yeah. thing that's uh, the raw meat shows that these people want blood. So she was this vampire, witch, reptilian super soldier. And just talking about a, a little more about Sherry Schreiner. You know, I visited her YouTube page. She has a ton of videos. Each one has thousands of views. So I don't know if these are all necessarily followers, but the content that she's putting out there is very popular. It was so much so that she has a website that has these things called organ blasters that will kill zombies and evil beings. And she raised more than $125,000 in a GoFundMe campaign to deploy these blasters. So whatever right. she's putting out there is popular. Yeah, I guess it gets to a larger picture, I think, that, that is actually fairly serious nationally. And that's about, you know, conspiracy theories and, and maybe the fragility of facts. Anyone can start up a YouTube video and say what they want. And I, I feel like there's something kind of innately human in people about wanting to know the truth or at least wanting to know that they're getting the real truth as opposed to what they're being fed by others. And so I think that's kind of the germ of a lot of conspiracy theory followers. That they feel like they've been lied to or they're getting the wool pulled over their eyes and they want to know what's really going on. She was originally up for first degree murder. They took it down to third degree murder and her defense team was pleading for leniency because she's never been in trouble before, really. And she's a mother of three. And it seems that, that it went that way. So she's going for 15 to 40 years in prison. And the family of Steve Minio was not very happy about that decision. They were very, very upset about that. They made that very clear after the sentencing that they wanted the maximum punishment for this woman. I think it was his aunt or her cousin said, this is somebody who blew someone else's brains out and she's getting this break. 
So they were very frustrated with kind of how justice played out here. But in the end, Roger's story in the courtroom was that she didn't know the gun was loaded, that Minio had forced her hands around the gun, had, had forced her to pull the trigger. Something very strange happened in that trailer that night, which obviously, I guess, we'll never know fully. And the jury seemed to lead some credence to her version of events. Kyle Swenson, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for helping us out with this crazy story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.